So there are different ways of like recognizing you are where you are because of that history and not just denying it. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Hannah Jones, who is Associate Professor in Sociology at the University of Warwick. Hannah specialises in racism, belonging and migration control. Notable accolades and contributions include contributor to Go Home, The Politics of Migration Control, Stories of Cosmopolitan Belonging, an editor collection with Emma Jackson, and the book Negotiating Cohesion, Inequality and Change, which won the British Sociological Association's Philip Abrahams Award for Best First Book in Sociology. Hannah is also the author of Violent Ignorance, Confronting Migration Control, which we're going to be talking about today. Hi, Hannah. Hello. Um, And if you'll remember, you should remember, listeners, if you've been with us along the Surviving Society journey, but Hannah has been on the show before. Um, We're big fans of Hannah's uh, scholarship, so it's really exciting to have Mm. you in the studio with us again, Hannah. That was way back when, though, before when the world was normal when... (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, well, quite on quite normal. Wasn't wasn't post post apocalypse? Like, post apocalypse. Post apocalyptic. That's the one. Pre apocalypse. Pre apocalypse. Although it did feel quite urgent at the time because we had a, we were having a conversation with Hannah about her paper on the murder of Joe Cox and the far right. Well, see, so had it segues into your book there. Like, <laughs> did, what did we forget? What did we omit? Yeah, yeah. But I just think that just before we get started, we'll be giving away a copy of the book, and obviously the links to the book um, are in the um, show notes. But this really, really is for anyone interested in history, race and class, migration, philosophy as well. This really, really is such a timely book, and. There's, there's a couple of books which I think we'll talk about throughout the show that I, it really reminds me of, but Hannah's sort of delivering clarity of some really complex kind of archival material and, and the formulation of violent ignorance is just so powerful and really answers a lot of questions I feel like we talk about on the show as uh, in terms of thinking about collaborators and how we understand history sorry I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm, I'm, I'm getting really excited no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big true. book I, I think it's sick I think it speaks of like I'll ask you about it later Hannah but yeah I think it speaks of the current moment as well how certain sides have appropriated this no, this notion of violent ignorance to their benefit mm. Yeah. (laughs) But Hannah, before we get started, could you explain to the listeners what violent ignorance is? I can try. Okay. So I've written a whole book on it. (laughs) So I've kind of tried to distill it as a name for the action of turning away from painful knowledge and the further violence that can bring. It's not about ignorance as in stupidity, it's about ignorance as in ignoring difficult facts. One does that all the time, right? to focus on our days like you can't always be thinking about all of the shit things in the world so but if you need to ignore violence that can also create more violence like by violence like hurting other people hurting hurting people hurting ourselves so the violence of turning away from difficult knowledge and 
though that can feel like we're just trying to not focus on people drowning in the Mediterranean or people being incarcerated. If you don't do anything, you're also implicated. So how do we live with that? Obviously, there's not an answer, but I'm trying to work through that in the book. I think, like I said, it's a timely question because people use those answers in that when the first, when the pandemic first hit, one of the arguments people say, people die all the time. Mm. So why are you focusing on this particular one mm. thing? So it's a thing that people are very conscious of, but no one really speaks about it. As Hannah was sort of giving that definition there, I'm thinking about something we were talking in the pre-chat about violent ignorance in terms of the knowing, but also the unknowing. And what I mean by that is the knowing in that actually, yeah, I do know that what I am doing or what I'm perpetuating is violent ignorance, but actually I put more value on this set of group of people's lives than I do with this set of people. And then the other violent ignorance I was thinking about is that thinking more about like reparations and like we had April Louise on the other week talking about mm-hmm. how like she'd discovered her family home in Wales and how they'd, they'd, there's these like brothers that are alive that profited from slavery and her family and like how claiming an understanding of history or your complicity or your family's complicity in, in a history of violence can bring about like people asking you for money can sort of can contribute to like a sort of reparations conversation mm-hmm. and actually like those two things I feel like Hannah deals with throughout the book like sometimes people actually just don't give a shit about what's happened and other times you don't want to say you've done something because actually that might bring you more like people will ask you for some money or might ask for an acknowledgement that you're not comfortable with, all those sorts of things. Again, Hannah kind of brings up in the book, it depends where you sit, right? If you're a perpetrator or a victim of those yeah. things. Yeah, right? and I'm also trying to get, it's not that simple mm. as well, right? So yeah. I don't know, have you listened to the Radio 4 programme Descendants? Oh, oh go well. on, go on. Is it good? Yeah, it's based on like Catherine Hall's transatlantic oh, slavery. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's Catherine Hall. Catherine Hall does um, has done it's, all the stuff about um, where the money comes from for the for oh, yeah, yeah, legacy yeah, yeah, of the yeah, slave yeah, trade. Yeah, so you yeah, can yeah, like yeah. trace your family scene if you're descended mm. from anyone who owned slaves. Yeah, but this is like a popularized version. But they've gone in and it's a different. It's non-academic mm-hmm. presenter, but they interview different people. I'm using it in my yeah. teaching. <laughs> so like, but they so it starts with the woman at the Black Lives Matter protest where they put in Bristol where they pulled down Colston and she got stood up and then they made a stat- someone made a statue of her and like her thinking about how she was descended from enslaved people and how it related to her but then also like people who were descended from slave owners and them trying to work through it and then how people are actually connected in different ways and implicated but obviously they themselves are not the person in history so that's the kind of you're implicated you're you might be descended from both owners and people who were enslaved what does that mean do you are you a perpetrator or a, mm. like and and is it that simple there's a bit that i really briefly touch on in the book from sadia hartman's work where mm-hmm. she's gone and like looked at the slave roots and there's kind of tourist industry of african americans going to kind of understand that history but tries to work out that difficult thing of like, are they, they're not the same. They're not coming home because their lives are completely different to the people who were forced onto those boats. It's not, she's not trying to discount that relationship, but it's not the same. And it's not the same as people who were still in Ghana or wherever either. So it's trying to be a bit more complex about these things, not denying these things are there in the history and they're important, but you're not just a, you're not just a winner or a loser. 
And, but yeah, that's what you was. But, but this is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the construction of that identity. That's the identity, especially for black people in the diaspora, right? So I, at the moment, I am looking at my dad and thinking like, how does he construct his own identity? Because mm. he's, he wants to go back home. But I said, that, that stopped being your home when you left. Mm. Because mm. that place is always changing. Mm. But then the place that you've made your home, you might feel it's your home, but people tell you it's not your home. Yeah. So what are you? And it, it turns out, you are what you are, depending on where you on place, space, context, and all that, all those yeah. things that we speak about before. So, the histories that you draw upon are contingent on where you are. Mm-hmm. And so he draws upon. Sometimes he might draw upon. He might be talking to me what happened in the seventies in Notting Hill, but equally he might draw on histories that, that happened what five years ago in a rich middle class suburbs where he lives right now. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting how it, sometimes they can be quite contradictory, but they sit next to each other quite comfortably. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's what's kind of what I when I read your book. That's what I see. That it seems simple, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's so complex. But then I was saying to you, Titty, when we were talking about mm-hmm. Hannah's conceptions of these things in violent ignorance, is that mm-hmm. it did also remind me um, about how we construct history and what's omitted and what we include, etc. It reminded me of Stuart Hall talking about being in Jamaica like seeing society weighing heavy on the kind of working classes and then coming to Britain and then seeing the exact same kind of physical, emotional, structural kind of like haunting, as you say, like you say in the book, like seeing that in the diaspora basically here and like how it is obviously context dependent like where you are what's happening at the time but there is a kind of there is a kind of continuation there is a kind of like not just intergenerational but something trauma as well that exists and lives within us even though as you say like the the african-american tourists that are going to ghana to see the sort of site like that's there is something different about that but that i don't know it just it, it was reminded me quite a lot of short hall so they're like scars right so mm-hmm. But and there's something universal about a scar. We can all have scars, but we all get them in different ways. Mm-hmm. So we can sh- we can recognize oppression. How oppression is formulated and felt is all is all different and unique. Mm-hmm. Again, this kind of juxtaposition between what is a universal abstract kind of thing yeah. like oppression, all those things we speak. There's a, there's a kind of like a universal yeah, yeah, yeah. these big abstract that can be felt in a kind of a priori kind of sense. But then there's something local and something we, we feel that resonates that's, that happens to you in in person in particular, and I think this there's that it's that kind of juxtaposition of those two things that go on when we're talking about when when Stuart Hall says he recognises those kind of things because mm. it's, it's a universal thing that you can see sadness, mm. absence, but it, it happens in a very unique way. And we're not talking about history; these things happen. History doesn't repeat itself; it's always unique, right? Mm. So you can't say this is something we recognise across the board because history is a unique thing. As Hannah says, history is a process of remembering and forgetting, but it's never over. <laughs> Straight from the book. Sorry, I've just realised, listeners, me and Tiso are doing that thing, and you might recognise it. When Sorry. we when a guest comes on and we like just love the book so much, we end up just like sat here, just like talking about it, and like the, the literal author is in the room. We're like, because I get so excited. Love to hear it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so I guess we're, we're sort of talking a bit about how cons- history is constructed on a kind of slightly on an individualised level here. want to talk a bit about chapter four Mm. in terms of the act of states or the British government um, removing 
omitting and denying sort of histories of genocide, oppression, mass death um, within the colonies. And we're talking about Operation Legacy here. So, Hannah, it would be good to just introduce that chapter if, if you could or introduce what Operation Legacy was and why sure. it's relevant for violent ignorance. Yeah, so this is all, I'm joining on other people's research in the book. I'm not an yeah. expert in those particular areas, but they're kind of, they're things I've used to think through some of these ideas. So Operation Legacy was the name that the, like the British government gave to um, how they handled the files as they withdrew from former colonies, like over the period of that stage of decolonization, And in Kenya in particular, which is what I focus on, um, there were thousands of files and it was in loads of different countries as well. But in Kenya, thousands of files documenting how Kenya was administrated by the British and that included um, long periods of war, basically. Um, the Mau Mau Rebellion is often what it's known as, which was the name given to the kind of freedom fighters or the people rebelling against the colonial rule, violent, you know, with guns. And um, there was violence on both sides, as they say, but mm -hmm. like a hundred and, I got the number in the book, but 132, less than 200 um, European settlers were killed, but there were hundreds of Kenyans, include civilians, um, were killed tens of thousands in concentration camps and then really graphic torture which is all documented in these files and obviously that's violence and then the, there was a stage of this which was about trying ignoring that in the sense that I talk about kind of erasing that history in the sense in the administration deciding to delete some of the files so some were completely destroyed and some were stamped with things like British eyes only for European descended British eyes only um, so this is like awareness clearly that these are con they was, these things were constructed and why someone would make a record of that we can talk about then they were destroyed because and that was called Operation Legacy so it's about leaving the legacy to the new independent government what would they do if they had these files and who could be held to account but they weren't all destroyed so some of them were taken back to the national records in the UK but never properly never kind of publicly marked and available and this all came to light because the people some of the people who were tortured when like getting into their 80s um still wanted to they obviously remembered this happening there might not have been written records to prove it but they knew this happened and were trying to get reparations or acknowledgement and apologies from the british government um and took various court cases and eventually this whole lot of what were called migrated files were found that still existed and so there was a court case which the British government had to settle in the end. So there's this kind of idea of not just that this violence happened and was documented and seen as not something hidden at the time. Then there was an awareness of trying to hide it and ignore it. So history was there, like in terms of documenting of history, not just in terms of memory, but written down stuff. That's removed and then it's put back into public knowledge or recognised knowledge. But that was through those survivors um, being able to kind of leave a, the, the courts and different kind of things to make that available and back on the record. So the question is then, mm. why would you get rid of it? Mm. What's the purpose of getting rid of it? Well, no, roll back. Why are you documenting it? Yeah. I, yeah. I guess why you, why you document it, but I understand... So as we spoke earlier, it's the idea, it's a bureaucracy, right? So they, that you you just have notes and stuff on people. Mm, mm. So the question is then, 
if that's the case of how bureaucracies work and have worked, mm. why did you choose to get rid of it? Mm. So there's stuff in um, that is, you know, I've not done this primary yeah. research. Historians that have found documents about um, saying that it needs to be destroyed, mm. um, and it's because it's going to be handed over to a new government, which could then hold that against the British. Um, both in terms of reputational damage to what the British Empire was and how the kind of way that history will be written and has been written has been written about the British Empire um, being a good thing and a civilizing force, but also in terms of you know at this point reparations, which some was paid in the end, some money, but um, that uh, yeah. So what I'm trying to talk about in terms of in the book in terms of violent ignorance is those violences did exist it's not like they weren't it's not like they were invented that was history and so using uh, Michel Rolf-Truyot's idea about mm. silencing the past from his book silencing the past like there's history in the fact creation like this stuff happened it's not like we're saying history is just made up you can't make up stuff but loads of stuff happened some things are remembered so that's where you know fact stuff that happened and then records are made they might be written they might be people's bodies they might be a building stuff happened but then it gets collected as history so like at that point if you destroy the record there's no one there's no way to remember it or if you um keep it and say that's really important that's what we're going to tell the story about and then there's the kind of how you narrate that story so you could narrate that story as those people were really bad people who needed to be tortured in these horrific ways or you could sort of say how horrific to torture people but it's not that those things, what happened has changed, but it's how how it's remembered and there's power involved in keeping things back or putting things forward and who gets to tell which story, which these kind of current culture wars about rewriting empire are actually, a, I mean, you guys know this, like mm. the decolonizing, the curriculum, but decolonizing knowledge stuff is not about writing a new, making up something new. It's about recognizing actually what did happen and that is documented even in traditional documents like these mm-hmm. ones so why destroy them because you don't necessarily want that to be your legacy mm-hmm. um, it reminds me of um when gary young came on the show and he was talking about um the museum talking about the british museum yeah. and the ben in bronze mm-hmm. and like and even the statues as well and like yeah culture wars people being like you guys are trying to rewrite history trying to take us to the bad guys and actually it's just such a bad faith argument because it's like no, we want more history. We want to know more about what happened, but you just don't want to tell us that. Right, so I, I guess it depends how how we receive history. History is received in forms of grand narratives, right? Mm. The postmodern moment is about discovering these kind of hidden narratives and adding them to this big story that we have. So in the case of we want more history, how do you incorporate that into the kind of current framework of historical understanding? Mm. If we include this story over here and this story over there and this story there, how does that how do you, how does that fit into our people's historical reference frame of reference when it comes to talking about histories? Yeah. Because people, especially in the West, we talk about history history in a very linear way, mm. as a line going back and forward. But now we have multiple lines joining all joining yeah, together. Good. But they've good. always existed, right? That <laughs> yeah, is, they've always that's, existed. That's how people existed. live. Like yeah. so we were talking before about that that kind of argument of like oh you can't put Cecil Rhodes you can't judge him by today's standards because mm-hmm. how could he have known that it was wrong to um, exploit people mm-hmm. or people or any of those figures right well yes there was 
different standards and accepted morals and ethics and ways of mm-hmm. being then. But it's not like nobody thought that slavery or colonization or invasion or dispossession were wrong if you include people who were being enslaved and dispossessed, mm-hmm. right? So there's a kind of idea that this that's question of putting things in the in the time and judging by the standards of the time is reliant on only remembering certain standards mm-hmm. of the time, mm-hmm. the ones that have got authority. So yeah. part of it's about like there will be many that is how like a, a sociological understanding of history would be well all of those things were going on and some yeah. of them we can we can find traces of now and we can try to recoup and use them to understand how we live now mm-hmm. um without putting it's not about putting those values onto the past it's about you know where are the stories of the women where are the stories of the enslaved people where are the stories mm-hmm. of the people who were farmers or whatever like they're not in the record in the way that a traditional kind of big age yeah. history yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to read a quote from the book, which I think is just amazing. One thing we can learn from the stories in this chapter is that the past is not over. The other thing to recognise is that the crisis of the abnormal in which the power of violent ignorance is increasingly hard to ignore is not something new or exceptional. For many people in the world, it has been abundantly clear for generations that those in power either refuse to know or do not care about the violence wrought by their everyday conduct so that's really good because just coming back from what hannah just said in response to ut there has always been there is always been resistance or people telling versions of the histories that we want to know now it's just that they haven't necessarily been understood amongst the grand narratives like do you know do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like like even in just thinking about like black radicalism thinking about education like we've always kind of been on the sidelines like telling our story or on the margin pushed within the margins telling our stories but like what has been understood within the national framework of history and whatever is always um admitting the things that um hannah the case studies for example that hannah locates in violent ignorance i'm speaking from my own personal experience so as someone who grew up in a kind of tradition that you i was always skeptical of what the the mainstream narrative so there's always been these things around but we always understand whoever has so some of those kind of like um far, are you bringing up the far right already no, no. <laughs> so, some, some of those like radical there's radical islam islam books i used to read when i was younger um they were saying basically like it's his story as in history it's, it's, it's their story right yeah. so you understand that oh yeah let's just remind the listeners yeah t was actually t was who man was radical t was t was <laughs> radicalized uh me for me growing up learned about history i i thought it was all what they said was right i wasn't that skeptical well i wasn't skeptical i was like oh, okay this is this is this is history and that's what i feel like we are in even though we have we're seeing so much attack, so many attacks from the state and the right and the far right on how knowledge is produced and how history is understood. It's such an exciting time for democratised understandings of like what happened or the archive and history. And this, I was going to say to Hannah, like, so in this current moment, like for example, the, the Holocaust denial mm-hmm. or trying to revise history to take away. So we've got archives, but mm-hmm. we're saying these archives are not factually true anymore. Or, or the loss of the kind of, the kind of survivors because they're dying out now. So people who actually live through it are dying. Mm. So we've lost the kind of 
historical memory. We've been talking about this recently, like sort of archive on institutional memory. Yeah. Like so, so when you when you've got this when you've got the right that are like coming full force online yeah. in person saying. So you're taking away these things, and so now you're able to construct a new version of this event that that we that they acknowledge happened, but it, it's either less than or not as bad as it was as as it has been portrayed in the history books, which were by their account on our wrong. So you're talking about Holocaust denial? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's been around for a long time, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even just kind of disputing the record, making stuff, all that kind of... Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's a problem, right? But that's a kind of sideshow, really. I mean, it, uh-huh. it needs to, you know, it's recognised that Holocaust denial is crazy, uh-huh. is not acceptable, is not based on any evidence and is outrageous and is tied to all kinds of hate. And that, although there is this group of people that will continue to do that it's pretty much in mainstream thought um not acceptable um and that's kind of but yeah it's interesting to put that alongside these current Mm. culture wars which kind of uh like the idea of culture wars being that academics critical thinkers anyone who's kind of questioning received knowledge are somehow taking over and getting rid of any truth where actually it's really people working it fairly at the margin still in mm-hmm. universities or at journalism or whatever doing that kind of work but um it's clearly a threat because otherwise there wouldn't be this backlash and this kind of argument about whether you can talk about figures from history in particular ways whether you can look at what churchill did beyond um the second world war mm-hmm. and the kind of no one reputable is trying to say that churchill didn't lead britain into during the Second World War and mm-hmm. involved that involved defeating Nazi Germany, but that's sitting alongside other stuff to do with how he related to India or to miners in the UK, whatever. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, but it's almost like you can't hold two com- dif- different complicated ideas at once. So, yeah, I don't know if that really relates to what yeah. you were saying. No, to, I, but, think, um, I think one of the things that I, I agree with what you're saying, Hannah, and I think, I think that what you're getting at there Tell, tell me if I'm wrong, is the way we've spoken about this before, like how violent liberalism can be mm. and thinking about, thinking about um, in particular Black Lives Matter and that kind of cultural but also like activist movement and thinking about how some of the backlash to that is that well, slavery was was part of like was part of this moment. It was part of that time. Why are you all complaining now? You've got this. You've got that. And there is a subsection of probably the alt right that crosses over with this kind of like Holocaust denial and this systemic anti blackness as well. Is that kind of what you're referring to? I, yeah, I guess it's it's kind of a, a kind of cross of both of them. It's like yeah, for example, so we spoke about earlier about the idea we want more history right mm, mm. but this it seems to be this is like a, a it's it's almost it's the antithesis of what what the mainstream is right so you can't have a complex view about churchill you can't have or when they look at the holocaust they try to downgrade it try to downplay it and it's the idea that we're coming from two comedians they want we want more history and they're saying well no that's 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 too much that's too much history mm. and this or is it that they're trying to is it that they're trying to like um obliterate solidarities and I guess, like yeah yeah i guess they are trying to obliterate. like when they when they look at stuff like that like mm. when i look at them when they for example talking about churchill mm. 
they want to construct an identity of a hero. Anything that's more complex than that, it kind of denigrates that identity. So therefore, you can't have that those debates. So this is why they yeah. get so kind of caught so this up. Is, on it. Yeah. So this, I guess it's also like who is they because there's all these yeah. different they. Yeah. 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 Sorry, we're over. so bad. We're, we're going right off, off, ta- off, ta- off tangent. We do do this. It's a kind of off topic. So what you're saying about kind of different kinds of scars and things mm-hmm. too. So and it kind of that's one of the metaphors that I kind of use. I play around with different metaphors around violent ignorance in the book about how when like ignorance or kind of looking away from difficult subjects is broken through and when it gets broken through it that's a kind of feels violent that hurts and that, so there are sometimes when you can't look away like the Grenfell fire when people were dying in a burning building in the middle of London it was very hard for anyone to just go oh well that's just a, a house fire right the, and it brought into focus lots of other kinds of injustices in the UK in that moment and although that's kind of died out of public consciousness from most people in a you know it's a low level thing there's a there's a scar so it like kind of breached the skin of people because of how horrific it was and then it's left some kind of scar but violent ignorant like that ignorance that kind of need to concentrate on something else or look away grows back like the skin comes back but you've got something there that it's a reminder it's a reminder and then can we hold on to those and also can we like keep in some ways keep those wounds open to feel that connect like the things that make people feel connected like when you when there are certain images that hit home about certain things is there a way of like holding on to that so is something that's like oh i see the things that feel personal to me do connect with the things that feel personal to you and if they're not the same and can we build solidarity there or is that too raw is that too hard to do so for example i guess similar would be like the george floyd thing right he's deaf Uh But then my question was, why that particular death? Mm-hmm. Given that this was something, that we, especially in America, we're used to seeing for a long, long time. Yeah. So why that particular death yeah. over any others? So why that resonance between that death and, and to say, well, same with most disasters, right? Certain disasters stand out more than others, given that disasters happen all the time. And some of them are played, right? So Grenfell is horrific. Mm-hmm. You can't downplay yeah, that, yeah, but yeah, yeah. there's like, disasters where roofs fall in on factories mm-hmm. and other parts of the world and that don't cut through here in mm-hmm. any or globally anything like that so there's something about who is seen as what's seen as close to the narrative or the viewer or whatever and some of that is about deservingness and some of it is just about the the image like with george floyd it was that it was i think it was partly obviously partly that it was videoed and visible how stark that was like Alan Kurdi, the boy washed up on the beach i was literally just gonna i was literally just gonna say to you hannah when you're talking i was thinking of that and i have spoken about this before on the show in terms of thinking about so my white family are from medway and like that part of ken is particular hotspot for ukip Mm. some very awful anti-immigrant sentiment like it's very much within the apologies medway people but i'm (laughs) saying it it's very much within a lot of the kind of um discourse Mm. like it's a very it's do you know what i mean like when i don't it washed up Mm. there was a kind of an empathy there a Mm. compassion there that seemed to what was it about that death that kind of people sympathise with or had compassion for or empathise with that, that entered the media and people were talking about it that I witnessed even amongst people that I wouldn't consider yeah. would care I think we've 
possibly in the public domain I don't know if that would receive the same amount of empathy and compassion it did at the time then maybe now no, I don't know I, don't I feel like it's got I feel like it's got so much worse but even and then it was like it's not like it was a friendly you know all the papers that and people loads of people have done this like look at all these front pages about how immigrants are invading immigrants this mm. and that all had that picture and were like look at this poor little boy we should and then actually there was this massive refugees welcome move like there were people willing to say refugees welcome come and stay in my house we and and that so it does feel like it was the image and, and there are certain things about that image and it'd be good to talk about how that relates to George Floyd more actually but that mm. image was like a little boy alone on the beach the person who took it said she knew at that moment that was going to touch people and he looked European like there was all these, there's lots of people have written about this like it looked like someone who white people could identify with but it's not like there haven't been other pictures of pale skinned children drowning it was just something about how that image did cut through did make that connection with people and pierce them and including people who would had control over front pages and mm -hmm. could share it in different ways that allowed people to feel empathy where rather than being led to feel fear or hatred or whatever and the George Floyd video obviously is not the same in those ways because it's it's a, all of there's lots of videos of black death at the hand of the police in the US and um, it was still a black man but he was obviously lying on the floor with someone standing on his neck and it was for so long that somehow that cut through to people in a way that it was too stark to mm. to look away from or to I mean I actually haven't watched it I don't want to watch no, it I don't I feel like I need to watch it but yeah. that kind of Connection. And then, and then it's and then but then you get these same kind of visceral um, images, videos, and whatever, and stories that don't touch mm, people. Mm, so, mm. for example, like we had Shamima Begum was on um, TV literally this morning, mm. and like people still see her as not as a victim, like not someone that was groomed, that was a child that has had her citizenship ripped away from her, like. Mm. It's very gendered, it's very racialized. Obviously, there's like so much Islamophobia involved in that as well. And it's like, what is it that cuts through like cuts through as as you you, you were saying? Um But she's Hannah. a really complex like Yeah. I was reading I can't remember who wrote I was reading something recently about why does she have to be a victim or a, a villain? Like yeah. actually, I mean she did go and join that. Yeah. But still she was a child and she's had and what people don't talk about is she's had all these children who died. Yeah. Who had their citizenship removed as well but yeah the complexity like you say like where's the room for someone who's not either a victim or a villain or where's the and actually people you know most people do know that in their own lives and that's where there's a chance to kind of think get people to recognize that they do know that like you do know mm. when you someone says to you where are all the women in history you go oh yeah like, even <laughs> if you weren't thinking that at school a seven-year-old yeah. would go yeah, yeah. <laughs> guess when we're talking about those things that kind of resonate with people, like I said, trying to say to, or trying to kind of uh, say earlier, it's the idea of a universal thing that we could all recognise. Mm, mm. We have a sense that these everyone recognises these things, but then we, like we said, in the complexity of real life, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're just indifferent and don't care. Mm. Sometimes we, sometimes we are aware of the complexities and we'd rather have a very simple, simple story. So we we project. So I guess I guess when Nietzsche was talking about concepts. 
he said like a concept's a lie that we tell ourselves to explain a difficult situation mm. and that's what we do most of the mm. time because the complexity out there's so much yeah i guess when you're trying to get into this thing of trying to have more history to be more detailed on a personal level you recognize that but on a universe in this universal thing it, it kind of it, it's there we sometimes like we like we choose to ignore yeah. it. Well, even personally, you can't yeah. know everything yeah. or process everything, and you still have. To. And I'm also yeah. So I'm trying to also there's a bit of the book, like I keep saying we in the book and stuff. And <laughs> who am I talking about with we? It's not universal. I'm actually trying to talk to people who are relatively comfortable in whatever kind of position. If you're if a, you're a person who's like trying to get to safety or trying to it doesn't have enough get enough food. To, for your kids like it's not about trying to like understand power relate like not that those people don't understand power relations mm. but it's just you need to focus on survival right so mm. but if you're you know if you're benefiting from some of these things isn't it kind of you're implicated in that violence and either you can just go okay well that's how it is or you can try to kind of recognize it and think about how to negotiate it but yeah on a personal level it's hard never mind on a it's mm. not appealing. It's not a, like nice electoral platform. Like let's all um, think about what, how lucky we are in some ways, even if we're unlucky. You know, there's not a. So that's why it's got to be about some kind of connection to actually. Yeah, I do care. I don't want to live in a world where the law <laughs> stands on someone's neck until they die in the street and no one intervenes. I don't want to live in, and maybe I can't change that myself. But the stuff. But that might be possible to change. And I, I, I think that's how I would not want to be. But then, I sit there and think, well, that's how we have been living, right? Mm. And this is how we continue to live. Yeah. And to to try and to, right. So I think that's the shift that needs to be. So I was just thinking about the Rana Plaza incident. Mm -hmm. So I think if people would just explain what the Rana Plaza is. Uh, it's it's where um it's in Bangladesh. I'm not too sure where where basically the uh, factory collapsed on people mm -hmm. and. So garment workers, yeah. and if you some pictures are horrific, right? Mm. So would that change people's buying habits if they saw the actual footage, the image? My feeling is no, no it doesn't. Wouldn't. And that so I use um, Susan Sontag's work a, a lot in the book to think about. She didn't write about that, but yeah. those kind of images, like we get used to. She's got this book called "On On the Pain of Others" or "Seeing the Pain of Others," um, about like war photography and yeah, how. So that I've used that for some of that thinking about <laughs> images I was talking about, but there's some images that are just, you get, I mean, people call it compassion fatigue, right? It, that's terrible. Intellectually, I know that, look at that picture of that factory and know it's terrible, but don't have space to like feel it. So I think mm. that's where what I'm going about that kind of, if people felt a connection, like if people thought are from that area, for example, that's an easy way that people would, or you knew someone in, that's why we always get the like, this many Brits died in the mm. earthquake. Mm. Which is prob which is also problematic, <laughs> but there's something about when do people feel it, and sometimes it is more universal, like with the Island Cody image, mm -hmm. to some extent with George Floyd. There's something that people, a more bigger majority of people, see as injustice, but it's not easy to know when that would happen, and it's not like something you want to provoke. <laughs> like it's not like let's have a disaster that people can empathize <laughs> with so that we see how bad it is. One of the things that I really like in the book is, um, and I think I was saying to you before, Hannah, that and um, listeners will um, remember some of these episodes in the show, but the book 
um, really reminds me of Imogen Tyler's Stigma Machine, Stigma, the Machinery of Inequality, and Aaron Winter and Aurelia Munden's Reactionary Democracy, how the far right became mainstream. Sorry, guys, I hope I've not butchered your subtitle there. Um, Because it's like a socio-political analysis but that also has case studies but also your own personal reflections in it and I love I like that's the type of writing that I just love so much and it's so it's written so clearly as well but one of the things I wanted to ask you is like how did you come to writing about this because it almost feels like it's like you're obviously like you're going to be going for a long time but it feels like something that's been building up as I was reading it, it felt like something mm-hmm. was very personal to you, very political, but also like something that kind of brings a lot of your scholarship together. Mm. That's exactly how yeah. it came around. It's like yeah. it was, wasn't a research project that I went all find out those things. It was various provocations and things that, yeah, I said to you before, like I'm like really interested in method, but I'm not quite sure what the method was in it. But um, yeah, I mean, one of the provocations was the murder of Joe Cox, but the response to it, which, like you said, we talked about before, and I'd written a kind of academic article on, but trying to understand, and that's how the book opens, like trying to understand how that happened, but also how that was a moment where an MP, a member of parliament, was murdered by a far-right activist, and it was horrific, and there was an outpour, you know, there was kind of around the world kind of recognition. There's not often political assassinations in the UK, but it was very quickly about a death of a, a wife and mother and everyone was sad about it. Everyone was united in sadness about it. But that didn't address, like, somewhat... It didn't feel like it quite addressed what had happened. Yeah, it was mad. Like, you had people in the Tory party and um, within UKIP or whatever saying, yes, this is tragic, but don't make it political. Excuse mm. me? But, Excuse me? But that kind of... Like, all of those kind of things like that, the kind of Island Curdy thing, like, how did all of those things get responded to and how did they and how do we make sense of our yeah so it's about it was very personal in terms of how do I make sense <laughs> where I, without wanting to write a book about like I'm not interested in myself but like <laughs> to kind of think yeah if I'm asking people to think how we're implicated then I, you need to do something you need to think about that yourself and how yeah there's some kind of puzzle about the discomfort so that is probably the thing that's my twitter handle uncomfy, uncomfy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah that was kind of even from like my phd was called uncomfortable positions about it was about local government but mm-hmm. it's a more interesting title like about thinking about negotiating within institutions or not necessarily these baddies and goodies thing so it's trying to work through that in some of the crises that are visible to us now and i think it was this kind of Yes, yeah, so a way of thinking about it is we put stuff to one side that is too difficult. And what would it mean to recognise that? But it's not just about recognising it and going, I understand that black lives matter. <laughs> like that doesn't solve anything, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what do you do beyond saying something or making a stand like what changes? I, I think sitting with something as uncomfortable as, I think when you just said about it's uh, a political assassination, we don't really have them in the UK. Mm. That's the narrative of the UK, right? It's mm. we're a stable democracy. Mm. We don't do that. That's not us. It's not the identity that we have on the stage, on the world stage, or how we see ourselves. The elite, I guess, mm. would see themselves that way. And so, stuff like those tensions, those uncomfortables, like <clears throat> if they do not it, dealing with them, would involve some kind of change. Mm. And 
what's changed, we don't know. So And so it's easier to either put it to one side and if, if you are going to deal with it, how are you going to manage that change? Mm. And that's what makes people uncomfortable because this destabilization like around uh, the Me Too movement, around Black Lives Matter, engaging with the past in such an active way involves reopening up those scars, right? And having feeling that pain again. Good, yeah. <laughs> More, want it. <laughs> and uncertainty no, about yeah. where that goes. Yeah. I think that's yeah. part of the like, stuff around, like obviously the Corbyn project, with mm. whatever that was and whatever yeah. that went. But some of the, like, but what is the alternative? You know, how are you going to win elections? And it, it's always coming back to like some kind of certainty about we need to win elections. But there's other stuff that goes on all the time and maybe enfranchising people who we haven't heard from in the mainstream won't you know who knows what would happen that kind of uncertainty is what is needed and i would say that that's part of our project here well that's what, what we try and do like i definitely as much as everyone knows i do really really like following party politics and elections <laughs> but i've had to divest from the election like the politics of electioneering the politics of winning power because actually that's not that's not the answer. So that uncertainty, right? So if you look at when they gave uh, women the franchise in the UK, prior to the-, the, the Some the, women. To, to some women, the franchise, <laughs> before everything, the reaction of the men, they said they thought the world could end. Mm. They they actually said that. They were thinking that it, possibly this could end. That uncertainty, mm. it, it, it makes people so uncomfortable because you don't know what could happen. Yeah. And if, if I think we what we have to do is foreground power in our analysis. If that means me losing power, it's not going to happen because it could happen. You don't know, no the future. So it mm. could happen. So people who are invested with power are thinking, well, I'm not going to take that chance. Mm. I think one of the things as well that I was thinking about when Hannah was talking about, yeah, being uncomfortable. One of the things that I try and do just personally, and I think we do do on this show is that I'm very comfortable in the unknowing of social life, but because I have various privileges now or I'm very stable in certain ways it means that I do have space to be comfortable in the unknowing of life does that make does that make sense as in what I mean basically is that I'm not afraid to say that I don't know what something is mm. or that I don't understand something mm. or that I need to locate my own um how I perpetuate or collaborate in violences like I try to basically vocalize that I vocalising both actions and practice and talking to people is that I I want to be comfortable in a vulnerability of unknowing of yeah. unknowing does that does that yeah. does that make sense and that's, that's exactly what, what I'm trying to yeah. think about because I'm trying to do that too, yeah, right? yeah, 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 and then yeah, yeah, I'm always yeah. going to still be like but here I am authoritatively talking about yes, my book yes. and, so and you don't want to like, and you don't want to sort of like reproduce kind of respectability you don't want to reproduce a kind of like civility politics as well do you know what I mean like you want to you still want to be resistant and push back but I am trying to say to people look I don't know but <laughs> I do know this. Yeah. Do you know? Or, equally, or like, people, let's be uncomfortable. Given the fact that, for example, people see you as an academic, by your title, you're a knower of knowledge, right? And so if I if I came to you as a student or someone who wants to know and you told me you don't know, I'd be like, well, this is this, yeah. is, this is a problem, right? Yeah. This is, yeah. your title is a bit of a... So, a bit so we, need to, kind of like, we need so, to undo epistemology yeah. then. So yeah. we're always kind of in between those things. So like, do you know um, free areas? pedagogy of the oppressed yes big up pedagogy of obviously the oppressed, even yeah. within that there's the same there's the same tension like he, he's still the teacher even though he's saying i'm not the teacher he's still like but this is how we should do things so yeah. 
you kind of have to recognize that that's part of this right is that contradiction like you're still able to say this because you have a job where you're allowed to say this rather Mm -hmm. than spending all your time down a mine or something like you're still kind of one is still in that position but Mm -hmm. that's the contradiction like we have to live with that so there's that kind of uncertainty and also it's risky because like you were saying about being a serious person yeah (laughs) sorry guys i was talking i was talking about with that if people think i'm a serious person again i will let it go at some point i promise (laughs) but that like but a serious person in the kind of traditional mold would never have any doubts would be like well absolutely i've read all of those books and i know all the answers to that and i'm i know i'm right or i can debate it with you but rather than going well oh that's interesting i've not thought about it like that how about these new ideas so yeah, it's where you fit into those hierarchies mm. can be changed. But it's also this uncertainty about what could happen. So there's like personal uncertainty and being allowed to not know and to learn and keep learning. But then there's like, yeah, what would happen if there were no borders? Well, who would be in charge? Like what if, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> what would but, happen if no one was in charge? But this is the thing, <laughs> I think... The Enlightenment Project, since like Hobbes and all that, it's all about the control, right? Mm-hmm. So the critical theory say it's about the control, the control of nature. That yeah. uncertainty cannot exist. It's trying to eliminate that uncertainty. Yeah, right? it's, tra- it's trying to get rid of it, right? So it's an acknowledgement or a passive acknowledgement that it exists. Sometimes they don't even outright say it exists, but it's the anxiety that sits behind it that they're trying to get rid of it. Because in Hobbes's in Hobbes's idea, the state of nature is what happens when you don't have that control, mm. and that. That in our and what set, is the state of nature? What chaos? Chaos, war against it. So that's that's how the Western mind conceives the lack of rules. So from Hobbes to Kant, where Kant says rules give you freedom, this idea to eliminate these kind of this uncertainty, it allows us to not deal with things that we know are happening, or deal with them and not talk about them. Yeah. Oh, it's a deep. It's a deep. <laughs> it's we're deep in philosophy now, guys. We're deep, deep, deep in. Nice. It's, it's sick. I was sitting there thinking, reading the book, reading Dan's book, I was like, oh, this is deep, man. This it is. is. <laughs> it is. It is really, really, really deep. In chapter six, we talk about, um, you start off by talking about Callum Tully, who goes into, who works as a security guard. Like in a detention Brook, custody officer. I think. In Brookhouse, yeah. um, which is a detention centre near Gatwick. And he ends up becoming a whistleblower and that sort of sets up the um and, and sort of uh works with BBC Panorama to show um the violence and neglect and just inhumane treatment of people being detained um within Brookhouse. Um yeah, so he becomes a whistleblower and then you kind of go later on into the chapter to talk about um teachers in Nazi Germany that are trying to find ways to resist teaching like young people like Hitler's ideologies um and I just found that chapter just so so I found it like haunting moving but kind of scary to read like reading through their reading through the teacher's testimonies of like what are our you you, you document like the four options that they have of like what are they going to do because if they try and resist teaching young people this awful hate hateful hateful ideologies and they'll be getting put into prison or they'll get thrown in the river um or their families will be killed and like if they do remove themselves then there's someone else they're just going to bring in another teacher to do this stuff and i just thought that that kind of the way you weave through the like 
more sort of like yeah the contemporary Brookhouse and like whistleblowing but even though you're whistleblowing this thing's still happening you're just shining that you're kind of bringing in a, a visual video um of the violence like that's there and then linking that to Nazi Germany and like people that were within that were within the Nazis that were trying to find a way to not the way you wrote it was that they were trying to find a way to um mediate and or not try and push such hateful views um of Jewish people in particular and I just found that link just so powerful, but yeah, like kind of haunting and like a bit scary. Like, it's, it's, no, but it's just, it's, you write so, so well, but yeah, that link was just, yeah, really powerful. Talking about people who are descended from perpetrators. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about like post-trauma, mm-hmm. like how much, so in the book, I guess the best is, well, the most kind of like flippant, not flippant, the most kind of like, the example I can use is probably Ben Affleck's one. Where he where he would find out he was descended from a slave, but also he found out his mum was a civil rights leader. No, he was descended from a slave yeah. owner. Sorry, descended from, yeah, sorry, slave owner. Sorry, that's it. That's from a slave. Wrong colour. Wrong colour. Wrong colour. Sorry. I thought he's a brother. <laughs> no, um, I just um so I think I think that's quite interesting because so the the choices people make mm. to admit or omit something. Admit, how, or admit. Admit, Ad, admit, admit or omit. Admit, admit, or and omit. Because he's he done both, yeah, right? Yeah, nice, nice, nice. Yeah, try, so, yeah. so, Hannah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Typical neurodiverse, me and T's mad brains. We've got Brookhouse, Nazi Germany, and then Ben Affleck. Well, I have to say, like, that's how the book is like. And then there's yeah. this. It's, honestly, I think, I think that's, are you our people? I think that's one of the reasons why I'm lovely. So you're just like, oh, yeah, and then that link's there, and then that link's there. Love, love that. Trying to, like, structure it, but it's yeah. a bit like, and then it says. Yeah. But, yeah. So they're, they're kind of, can I talk about them slightly? Yeah. Yes. And then try yeah. Like, yes, definitely. So like the chapter on kind of Brookhouse and that talks about Brookhouse and then a, so that's drawing on this panorama documentary that Callum Tully was like a teenager who started working there and like was drawing the book, like the advert to work in a detention centre is like, you can help people, You, can, you we need people <laughs> who are fair-minded and care for people and you'll be like a good chum to these guys and like you get paid just above the minimum wage to be in charge of 100 men on on, their, on your own, on a wing, who are locked up. Like, that kind of... The position people are put in, thinking that, naively, maybe, thinking what job they're going for. But he went in, found it was awful, and then whistleblowed to Panorama, made a TV documentary with the BBC as a way of resisting, right? He didn't leave, he didn't... But that was a kind of way of showing what was going on. And you can still say that he was... You know, that's a really brave thing to do, actually. But you can also say you could go, oh, well, he was now he could have a career as a journalist. So, like, what's what's in it for him? I've no idea what that person is doing now. Mm-hmm. But even if that's the case, it doesn't matter. Like, you have shown the cruelty that was going on there. So still implicated in systems of power yourself. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of link that to, but what can you do? So that's where the link to that, those examples which are drawn from Amy Buller's book called Darkness Over Germany, written in the 40s. Um, and she spent time in Germany. She was English, spent time in Germany like before the Second World War, talking to people and these teachers who were, yeah, like, what can I do? And they're kind of, well, obviously there were five options, really, because they could have just, like, complied and gone full, like, that's fine, we'll be Nazis. But they were trying to resist. They could leave the country, they could 
write books about how bad it was and like leave teaching and just feel better for themselves but like you said the te- or they can stand up and make a stand and get sacked or killed or imprisoned but like the kids will still be being indoctrinated by someone else so they were kind of saying that might make our consciences feel better but what they these guys chose to do was stay and just make the Nazi te- lessons <laughs> boring and try and give critical thinking and other ways of thinking in their other lessons in kind of without being picked up and they were still under pressure and that but that's the kind of you're still collaborating what is there that realistically people can do so it's easy after the fact or it's easy at the time to say that institution is wrong leave it or to say like if you stay in it you're making it worse and maybe all of those things are true but people who have to live so where so I'm trying to kind of say like there isn't an answer but these are some of the ways through that people have found in these situations and they might still be wrong or right but that's it's that complexity and then I guess that that the chapter on kind of families and I try and talk about how people do this with their identities like you were saying T and that Ben Affleck example was so as a film star he was like doing his not who do you think you are but an American version of that and yeah they found so he, it was all about the episode was all about his mum doing civil rights um, bus campaigns and so on um, but yeah he also had this great great whatever who was who owned slaves and he asked for that not to be included and then they made the program and then with the sony leaks um emails about that came out oh and so, God, the sony did, yeah, so, <laughs> so, so it was because yeah. of the sony leaks that yeah. people found out and actually that made him look worse because it he then had this this is all public right then he <laughs> did this statement about i just i don't want to be associated with enslavement i think it's wrong and that's why i didn't want that to be my story and i I apologize but actually there were other people who had similar film stars who had similar life you know family trees and they were benedict just... cumberbatch <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's public not it's there's cumberbatch like there's, there's a plantation massive like yeah, yeah. like yeah he is sorry he is but wealthy <laughs> but i think because of slaves but this was an american <laughs> this was one who had who had gone like okay i found out i was wealthy because of slaves but rather than going i'm not going to tell that story was like uh, not Cumberbatch, like I think it's Bill Paxton. Or, yeah, yeah, Bill Paxton. Yeah. Bill yeah. Paxton for the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But it was like, okay, well, let's understand what happened, and let, maybe let's rather than glorifying that great great grandfather, let's look at the people he enslaved, and let's try and find out what we can about like memorialising those lives and telling those. So there are different ways of like recognising you ha- are where you are because of that history, and not just denying it so what Affleck did was kind of like that's a horrible history I don't want people to think about me as having any association with slavery because obviously it was wrong whereas he actually upset people more by just trying to hide that make that not something that didn't happen because it was horrible rather than live understanding the consequences and going okay so you could have gone right I had those that ancestry but look my mum did some stuff to try and rip like repair that even whether or not she knew and I'm I'm trying to do things differently now and I'm trying to understand how I have what I have because of that you don't have to go like it's nothing to do with me you can kind of go I don't I wouldn't have done I hope I wouldn't have done that and this is where I fit it really annoys me that he did that but that really pisses me off but but can you uh, but you can you can kind of understand his reaction right because like we've said before these people need to live right so he's living now 
So he's is it's the the reaction is the ang reaction is a response to the anxiety that he, he could be accused of being similar or people say like your wealth you don't deserve the position you got because it's off the back of people. Yeah, so you could. So I'm not trying to say you can't understand mm-hmm. him, but I am trying to say. Maybe I there are other options. Bit. I am a little bit. Honestly, T, I I don't think I can get to that with it. But there's something like that. No, I, I, I aspire, I aspire, I aspire to get like, I aspire to have those levels of understanding, but I don't think I can on this but one. But understanding is different from condoning. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 like yeah, 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 yeah. We try and understand yeah. why murderers do things they do. It doesn't mean we think, oh, once we understand it, that's totally yeah. fine. Like, <laughs> you know, there's a kind that's of true, like... It's true. But also, like, to understand that there were other options. Because the problem is you go, I understand why I did that. That's what everyone would do. Oh, no, there are other yeah, ways the options, to yeah, think yeah. through it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just thinking, like, I could see his response. And I think I think it's that, fe- I guess it's dealing with that feeling of being uncomfortable. And then when you feel uncomfortable, what do you do? Mm-hmm. So in a crisis, what do people do? And so- sometimes people took a lot of shit. Like, when, they, when the heat's done, when it's not happened to them, they think, oh, I would do this. Yeah. But when shit happens... Don't do that at all, bro. So I guess the project is like, how do you? Sorry, no, no, carry on, carry on. Carry on the project on. is how do you think that through in advance and think, oh, maybe there is another way I could. Re-. So like, it's like thinking, yeah, okay, when someone breaks in my house, what would I scream? Would I hit them? Would I run the police? Would I run away? And that's such a great way to end because Hannah's project, like Hannah's intellectual project, is a lot of it is about being uncomfortable, and we've kind of done a full circle. But, but also like critical thinking under pressure, like when you're when those moments happen and you feel that way to think things through differently to kind of have have those tools at disposal of being empathetic understanding and all those things that that kind of help help that help reason yeah yeah i guess hannah thank you so much for joining us that was so good my head like it's like i'm just thinking about so many things i don't really like headphones you don't really like the headphones. Make, make it is sweaty. Do, yeah, do you but feel like your brain sounds better inside? They do, they do. <laughs> but my brain feels restricted as well. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, thank you so thank much you, for joining us. That thank was you. incredible. Um, and thank listeners, you. we'll be back again next week. See you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 